Let me pray for us before we start. Father, we come to you humbly, knowing fully who you are, because your word tells us you are holy, you're righteous, you're sovereign, you are Lord over all creation. And in your kindness, you choose to reveal who you are to us through Christ, our Redeemer. So we thank you that we can know you, the God of all creation. Thank you for your son, that he took our sin, that he took our guilt, and that he took your wrath and died in our place and was buried and you rose him from the dead and he ascended to your right hand and sits there now waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool we thank you for the gospel thank you that is our only hope that's the reason why we're here this morning we got nothing to boast about before you our boast is in Christ so we just pray, Father, that you would be kind and generous and gracious and merciful to us by revealing more of your son to us this morning. God, I pray that you would help me. I'm, a, I'm super weak. I pray that you would magnify Christ through my weakness, my inability to give your people your word, to stand up here and fear and to say, thus says the Lord. So I just pray that you would help me by your spirit, that you would help us to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, it is always a privilege for me to preach the word to you here at Kahului Baptist. Granted, we, I'm sure we all stayed up late last night. Kahului was going off. We could see it from Waikapu. Fireworks everywhere. But though we stayed up late today, it is not only a privilege for me to preach the word, but I want to remind you, it is a privilege, brothers and sisters, to hear God's word. And so... I come here and I bring greetings to you from Kailua Baptist Church. Many of you do not know who Kailua Baptist Church is, but some of you do. And uh, that's the church where, like Randy said, my wife and I are members there. And we want you to know that, Kahului, uh, that Kailua, sorry, there's two KBCs, that Kailua Baptist Church prays for you, Kahului, regularly that we are so thankful for your gospel witness here on Maui. We are so thankful for your continual partnership with us in the advance of the gospel here in these islands. We are so thankful for you. So it really is a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. Our text today is one of the most densely packed Christological texts in the New Testament. It's bursting forth with glorious and robust truths about who Christ is and what he has done. Paul will speak of Christ's pre-existence, 
his incarnation, his death and exaltation. And all of this is meant to shape the life of the local church. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough for you to merely affirm these things. Rather, they must shape and influence you here at Kahului, your life with one another. And that's exactly what Paul intends to do here in Philippians 2. Paul intends the humiliation and exaltation of Christ to awaken in your church a kind of humility, a kind of love, a kind of unity that is so radically different from the world. These truths are meant to lead the Christian into a life of self-sacrifice for the good of the church, for the advance of Christ's gospel, and ultimately for the glory of God. And so before we dive into today's text, I just want to remind you of its context. Paul is currently fleshing out his command in chapter one, verse 27, to live lives worthy of the gospel, to live a life that makes known and shows off the worth of the gospel, to live in such a way that the glory and the beauty and the greatness of the gospel is put on display to the way you guys live life here at Kahului. And in chapter two, verses one through five, which I preached probably about exactly a year ago, I think, Paul specifically fleshes out this command by urging the Philippians to preserve and promote their unity by being humble. What a thought. To preserve and promote unity by being humble. The church is supposed to be a humble and unified people. And now in verses six through 11, which will be our text today, Paul transitions their focus onto Christ as the basis of their unity and humility. So let's look at that in verse five. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, the mindset, and, the mindset of humility and other-centeredness that Paul exhorted them towards in verses one through five is actually the very same mindset that we will see Christ demonstrate in verses six through 11. Today's text can be summarized with two very simple points. In verses six through eight, we will see the humiliation of Christ. And then, secondly, in verses nine through 11, we'll see the exaltation of Christ. So let's read verses five through seven. He writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Notice that Paul says he was in the form of God. Paul here is speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ. That is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, before he became a man. 
Now, the word form here can be a little difficult for us in English because there's not really a precise English equivalent. Translated in English, it almost makes it sound like Paul saying that Christ was like God. Not the real deal God, not God himself. However, I agree with most commentators that the word form here refers to the very nature or essence of someone or something. That is its inner substance, having all its essential qualities and characteristics. Having all the essential qualities and characteristics of that one or that thing. So the NIV better communicates the original meaning of this word when it translates this, Christ Jesus, who was in very nature God. Paul is saying here that the pre-incarnate Christ existed fully as God. Now, this is the same pre-incarnate Christ spoken of by John when he wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the same Christ who shared in the Father's glory before creation, John 17, 5. This is the same Christ who made all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the same Christ in whom was the source of all life. John 1, 3 through 4. This is the same Christ whom the writer of Hebrews says is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. This is the Christ whom Paul is writing of here in verse six, who was in the form of God. And so if Christ's deity were not clear enough, look at what Paul says next. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So again, being in the form of God means Christ was equal to God. The Son was fully divine, equal with God, yet distinct from Him. Both phrases here point to the same reality, Christ's full and absolute divinity. Yet as God, notice what Christ did not do. Notice what Christ did not do as God. Christ did not consider It's something to be grasped or clung to. That is, he did not cling to his divine rights and privileges as God the Son. Paul is using this idea of grasping to contrast Christ with the mythological gods and pagan kings of their day. They were known for using their power power and authority to grab and get and take whatever they wanted. I remember watching Braveheart. It's a very young kid. And being overcome with feelings of helplessness and horror. The bad guy was King Edward I of England. This king would use his superior military power to conquer and ravage little towns all throughout Scotland. Soldiers on horseback would invade and take goods and livestock and women, sometimes they would just straight up slaughter the people and burn the towns. And all of this was done in the name of the king. 
And it was, this, it was the same way for the Greek gods of their day. In Greek mythology, the gods were selfish, vindictive. They used their power for whatever they desired. And many suffered at the hands of these great and mighty gods. But it was not so with Christ. It wasn't that way with Christ. Though Christ was supremely greater than these pagan kings and pagan gods, he was surprisingly unlike them. And not only unlike them, but unlike us. Think about it. How often do you feel the impulse to selfishly exercise your rights and your privileges at the expense of others? More often than we'd admit, we'd rather be recognized and catered to. I mean, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm kind of a big deal. That's Anu Hale. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we got a lot to learn from Christ. Amen. He did not grasp or cling to his rights and privileges. As God, he did not refuse the plan of his condescension into humiliation and suffering. He did not refuse it. Rather, in verse 7, we see that as the eternal son, he emptied himself. Christ, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He did not cling, instead he emptied. The eternal son of God poured himself out for us. Now the phrase emptied himself has been historically controversial. There's a heresy that basically says that in emptying himself, Christ gave up some or all of his deity. In other words, in taking upon humanity, Christ ceased to exist fully as God. However, the question must be asked, what exactly did Christ empty? I was really helped by here, I was really helped here by uh, Dr. Bruce Ware, a professor at Southern Seminary. He points out that the text does not say that Christ emptied something out of himself or something from himself. Rather, it was himself that he emptied. That is, he poured himself out Paul will use similar language in chapter 2, verse 17, where he speaks of his life as an apostle, as one that was poured out like a drink offering. You see, what Paul is doing here is employing a metaphor to say that Christ gave of himself. That is, while retaining all that he is as the eternal son of God, Christ gave himself to the role and the task that the Father had for him. Not only that, but the witness of the New Testament is absolutely clear, brothers and sisters, that the divinity of Christ is, re is retained in his humanity. 
Colossians 1.9 says that in Christ, and the context here is Christ as the resurrected and ascended God-man, that in Christ, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you can go do a word study on that dwelt later. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. And I've already mentioned Hebrews 1.3 but it speaks of Christ the ascended God-man as being the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Dr. Ware wrote a helpful little book of his meditations on the humanity of Christ titled The Man Christ Jesus, and I recommend that to you. It's a good read. It's helpful for us understanding the humanity of Christ. And in it, he says, since Christ is fully God, he cannot cease to be fully God. God is eternal, self-existent, immortal, and immutable. He has eternally been fully God, and now in the incarnation pours out fully who he is as God while remaining fully God as he does so. That's a, that's a pretty packed statement. Like I said, go read the book, it's very helpful. So if Christ did not empty himself of his deity, what, what did he empty himself of? In what way did he empty himself? How did Christ pour himself out? Look at the text. He did so by taking the form of a servant. He who was in the form of God emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Dr. Ware says this is a kind of addition by subtraction. In other words, Christ pours out by taking. Christ empties by adding. In verse seven, Paul writes, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the likeness of men. This is shocking. Please, brothers and sisters, do not get used to reading texts like this. Do not lose the wonder that a text like this is meant to invoke in your soul. The eternal son did not grasp or cling to his privileges and glory, but gave up those things by emptying himself in becoming a man. Taking on the role and task of a servant this is the doctrine of the incarnation. That is that Christ, the eternal son of God, became man. The one who was in the form of God took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul uses the word likeness here because in becoming a man, Christ, like I said, retains his full deity. As one scholar put it, Jesus is truly man, but not only man. So being born in the likeness of man, the eternal son becomes fully man. He was made to be like you and I in every way. 
Jesus was carried and nurtured in his mother's womb. He had to learn to feed and to roll over. He had to learn to crawl and to walk and to run. He had to learn his numbers and how to count. He had to learn his ABCs and how to read and how to write. Now, when my brothers and I were taking Greek and Hebrew together, which was awesome in Kentucky, we would come up with like the most ridiculous and silly ways to remember ABCs and vocabs and paradigms and such. And I'm sure it, it wasn't much different with three-year-old Jesus. Aleph, bet, gimel, and dalit, hey, and vaven. Aleph, bet, gimel, and dalit, hey, and vaven. Zion, he, and te, and yod, and yoshlam, and memun, samik, ayan. You see, Jesus grew in knowledge. He learned submission to his parents. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. You see, Christ, the eternal son, became man. And before he was a man, he was a teen. And before he was a teen, he was a boy. And before he was a boy, he was a baby. And before he was a baby, he was the eternal son of God. This is meant to blow minds and awaken hearts. God the Son humbled himself by becoming a man. And as if Christ couldn't condescend any lower as a man, he became a servant. The one who was in the form of God is born as a man and takes the form of a servant. The eternal son exchanged all his rights and privileges as God to become a servant with no rights and no privileges. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul says, though Christ was rich, and he was rich, he became poor for your sake so that through his poverty you might become rich and in becoming a man that was poverty for the son of God. His purpose in taking upon humanity was to be a lowly servant. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28 that the son of man did not, did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus exemplified servanthood. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. He washed his disciples' feet. And we know that his service to you and I culminated and climaxed in his death. And so in these verses, we've seen that as God, Christ empties himself by becoming a man. And now moving on to verse eight, we'll see that as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. How did Jesus humble himself? As a human being, Jesus became obedient. That is, Jesus obeyed all that his father ever desired of him. As a man, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. In his humanity, Jesus being perfectly reliant on the spirit, kept the whole law of God. He loved God and loved neighbor perfectly. His whole life, he obeyed and submitted to his Father's will perfectly. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4, 34. He said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6, 38. So his whole life, he set his mind and his heart to obey all the Father ever commanded him. And yet Paul's stress is not merely on Christ's obedience. Paul's stress is on the extent of his obedience. There was a trajectory to Christ's obedience. He obeyed and served his Father perfectly, becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Christ's obedience would lead him to his death. He said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. He came as a servant to give his life. Christ's service to us, church, in obedience to his Father, led him straight to his death. And it was not an ordinary death. It was a death on the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus bore the guilt and the sin of his people and consequently endured the full punishment of their wrath. The holy and awful, righteous and infinite anger of God against all our sin was poured out on his son. The son would be abandoned and cursed on the cross. A crucified and cursed son of God? That's impossible. And yet, in Mark 14, 35 to 36, Jesus, filled with terror and weakness, unlike we've ever seen him before, would stare down the cup of God's wrath right before going to the cross and would pray, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus, the God-man, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. And so we see here the humiliation of Christ, that as God, Christ emptied himself by becoming a man. And as man, he humbled himself by obeying unto death. And as we move verses 9 through 11, what we're going to see is the father's response to the son. How does the father respond to the son's obedience? How does the father respond to the son's humiliation? He does so by exalting the son. Let's look at that. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse 9, Paul writes, Therefore, God. The focus now turns to God the Father. What is the Father going to do in response to the Son's obedience and humiliation? Therefore, God highly exalted him. The Father responds to the Son by exalting him. This exaltation is the Father's approval of the Son's obedience. It is the Father's vindication of the Son's humiliation. Notice the Father highly exalts him. That is, he hyper-exalts him or super-exalts him. In response to the Son's humiliation, the Father exalts the Son to the highest possible degree. Or he exalts him to the highest place of honor. How so? Or in what way does the Father exalt the Son? Look at that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How does the Father exalt the Son? By bestowing upon him the name, the name that is above every name. Now, there's some debate here whether Paul is speaking about the name Jesus, which comes directly after this sentence, or the name Lord, which we find in verse 11, where every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord. However, many, if not most, scholars agree that Paul is speaking about the name Lord, and I believe they're right. You see, the word Lord is significant because it's the same word which is always used in the Old Testament to refer to God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh is the supreme name of the Old Testament. Historically, Jews revered the name Yahweh so much so that scribes wouldn't even write it out, and in its place they would write, Lord, which is what we see throughout the whole Old Testament. And so biblically, the name Lord becomes synonymous with the name Yahweh. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In other words, he's saying, I am Lord, 
and I don't give my glory to anyone else. And yet in Philippians 2, that is exactly what the Father does with the Son. The Father highly exalts the Son by bestowing upon Him the name that is above all names, the supreme name of the Old Testament. That is the name Lord, signifying the Son's equality and oneness with God and the Son's supremacy and authority over all creation. As we continue reading, we see in the text that God's purpose in bestowing this name upon the Son is that every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Look at that. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. God exalts the Son bestows upon him the name so that at the name of Jesus, that is the name that now belongs to Jesus, there will be universal bending of the knee and confessing of the tongue that he is Lord. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is universal acknowledgement of Christ's lordship over all created beings. Brothers and sisters, this means that there is not one person in this room who will not bow the knee and confess with the tongue. There is not one person in your family or at your workplace or in your school or in your neighborhood, or on this island, or in this state, or in this nation, or in this world, who will not bow the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. This is universal homage paid to King Jesus. All created beings from all times in all spheres of creation will bow the knee and acknowledge with the tongue the absolute and universal authority and lordship of the man, Christ Jesus. Now to be clear, this bowing and confessing is not necessarily salvific. And what I mean by that is that not all who bow and confess are bowing and confessing unto salvation. There, there will be those who bow out of love and adoration for Christ. And yet at the same time, there will be many who bow and confess and yet hate Christ in trepidation and in terror, they will bow before his awesome majesty simply because they can no longer resist his rule and authority. And so they bow. All created beings will bow before him on that day the most hardened unbeliever that you know will bow. The most 
influential person in our society, the most influential and powerful people of our society will bow and confess with the tongue. President Obama will bow. Kim Jong-un will bow. The leaders of ISIS will bow. And friend, if you have not bowed your knees to Jesus and confessed him as Lord, there is still time. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is patient and desires that all be saved. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. And so I plead with you, if that's you, if you have not bowed your knee, if you are still living your life as Lord of your universe, I plead with you today, turn from your sin. Flee from the wrath to come and trust in Christ. Do that today. Don't put it off. I know that any of the members here at Kahului Baptist would love to speak to you about that, so reach out to them. And so, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And this is good news for us, church. You know, this past week, I had the opportunity to babysit the little cousins. Those, the Komatsu cousins are just multiplying like crazy. There, there's gonna be a lot, guys. In the next three to five years, there's gonna be a lot, just a heads up, okay? But I got to babysit them, and like the responsible uncle and father that I am, I threw on Zootopia. And there's this scene in Zootopia where Officer Hops discovers the limo where Mr. Otter turns savage. And I'll admit, the first time that I saw it, my heart started to beat a little fast. I started to get a little scared for little Officer Hops. I thought she might not make it. But anyone who's seen the movie knows that no matter how scary Zootopia gets, in the end, Officer Hops makes it. There really is no threat to Officer Hops' safety or Officer Hops' happiness. And yet my three-year-old daughter, no matter how many times she's seen that movie, she could watch that a billion times and the scary parts still grip her with fear. She, she knows what's gonna happen at the end and yet she's still terrified and runs into daddy's arms. Brothers and sisters, like my daughter, we know how it ends. You know how it ends. I want to challenge you to live every day in light of the last day. We know that on the last day, Christ will stand victorious over his enemies. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Do not be intimidated. 
no matter how scary it gets. Be faithful here at Kahului. Preach the gospel fearlessly. Preach the good news of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, knowing that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So God exalts his son as Lord on the last day and a final acknowledgement of Christ's absolute rule and universal reign over his creation will take place. Now I want you to notice something. I don't want you to miss this. Notice how Paul closes this sentence. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see the ultimate Trinitarian purpose in the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. The Son was humiliated and the Son was exalted with what end in mind? The glory of God the Father. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Earlier in chapter one, verses 10 through 11, Paul prays that the Philippians might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Paul desires that on the last day, their perseverance in Christ will result in praise and glory to God. And so the ultimate reason why the Son did not grasp at his equality within the Godhead, but rather emptied himself, was so that in the end, the Father would be glorified. In John 13, 31, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Paul also speaks of this reality in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. What's going on here? When all things are subjected to Christ, then he himself will be subjected to the Father. And with what end in mind? That God may be all in all. The glory and praise of the Father was always at the forefront of the mind of Christ. The focus then at the end of verse 11 is not on the son's love for his people, which in fact is true and glorious, but instead the focus here is on the son's love for the father. He was after the father's glory. That in his humiliation and exaltation, all of it might be done to the glory and praise of God the father. And it's the same with you and I. All that we do, all that we do is for the glory of God. I wanna close here with just one simple exhortation, one simple application. We've seen this robust and glorious truth of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, but I wanna close by going back to verses one through five. I want you to hear verses one through five as your primary response to the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. What is the main response for you, Christian, 
after hearing these crazy, robust Christological doctrines, what is your response? It's right here in verses one through five. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul writes. If if you've experienced these things from Christ, then complete my joy, he writes, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This exhortation towards Humility and unity is grounded in what Christ has done and who he is. And it is for you, church. This is for you. As we gaze upon the glory of Christ, upon his humiliation and his exaltation, we will be conformed by his spirit into his likeness. So Kahului Baptist, keep looking to Christ, the God-man. Embrace and rejoice and love and exalt in him and all he is for you. I've prayed that the Spirit would use these glorious Christological truths to humble you, to humble us, to flatten us and make us real laurel Make us real low before the presence and power of the majesty of the God-man, Christ Jesus. Paul will later say in this chapter that as the church does this, as we humbly live unified in the gospel, our lives will look so strikingly different from that of the world that we will shine as lights in the world, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. As you strive to maintain the unity of the body here at at Kahului, as you strive to put away selfishness and put on humility that you see in Christ, your lives together here at KBC will look so strikingly different from the world that you will shine as lights here. Do you want that? Do you long for that? We must strive for the cultivation of the mind of Christ. One of the best ways to do that, I know you guys have in place right here, small groups. Get involved in a small group if you're a member here. So brothers and sisters, by God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, sacrifice yourselves. Empty yourselves. Pour out yourselves. Give of yourselves for the good of your church here at Kahului. 
for the advance of the gospel and for the glory of God. And do this all the while eagerly awaiting that day when the lordship of Jesus will be fully realized and acknowledged before all his creation. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these truths about who Christ is and what he's done and that you would have your way with them. We believe that you desire these things to change us. And so I pray that you would change every Christian here, that you would change Kahului Baptist, make us a humble and unified community. And we praise you that you are doing this, so we pray that you would do this even more. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.